Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a saint who won one of Europe's greatest victories against one of Europe's most implacable foes. Name John of Capistrano, or John Capistran. Life, around 1385 to 1456. Status, Saint. Feast, October 23rd. Since he was a boy of six years old, John had been recovering from his father's big mistake. He had recovered by hard work and determination. Now, in 1416, just entering into his thirties, John had everything his father had wanted, and more. He had power, a reputation for justice, a glittering legal career, and a beautiful fiancée. Or at least, John thought glumly, as his feet sloshed about in the water that had flooded his cell, he used to have all these things. Now he was a prisoner. How to escape? How to get back? To his life. John didn't yet know that his old life had already ended. What awaited him was a destiny of such strangeness, of such greatness, that despite his considerable accomplishments, the most interesting part of his life had not even begun. About thirty years earlier, John's father had come to the little Italian town of Capistrano. He was a supporter of a French nobleman who hoped to become king of Naples. The messy politics can tell us something about the state of Europe at the time. The nobles squabbling for control of Naples both had, as they thought, the support of the church, for the church had slipped into the terrible schism of the late Middle Ages. One noble was backed by the pope, the other by an anti-pope. When a clear winner emerged in Naples, it turned out that John's father had backed the wrong side. The new king executed him, along with many of his rival's supporters, and now John and his mother were alone in a strange land. John's mother, however, had noticed something about her little boy. He was intelligent, very intelligent. When she hired tutors, they said the same thing. As a teenager, John went to university in Perugia, studying both canon and civil law. He breezed through, and soon his professors were the ones asking him for legal insight. By the time he left the university, John of Capistrano was in demand. He practiced law, then became a judge. His career caught the eye of the king of Naples, who was willing to forget about John's father's mistake. The king wanted John to govern the city of Perugia. 
The citizens of Perugia must have groaned when they saw they were supposed to be governed by a young man of just twenty-five. But with every judgment that John made, they felt more at ease. He was fair-minded. He was thorough. He dealt with chaos and banditry. He was on the side of those who had no one else to speak for them. And when the king asked John to condemn an innocent man for political reasons, John simply said, no. John was set up to marry a girl from a good family. Everything was going well. Perhaps John thought that he had finally arrived. So when a neighboring lord made war on Perugia, John went to negotiate with him in good faith. It was a mistake. The lord had John tossed into a dungeon. Or rather, the lord first tossed John high above the dungeon into a slightly more comfortable room in a tower. John was put in leg irons to prevent his escape, but he had a plan. He used his teeth to tear his clothes into strips and made them into a rope so he'd climb down the outside of the tower. Unfortunately, this wasn't as easy in real life as it was in the stories, and his rope ran out long before he got to the ground. John decided to jump. With the leg iron still on his feet, he landed badly, hurting his foot. He tried to limp off, but the guards heard the noise from the leg irons and ran him down. This time, he was going into a cell without a window. And that was how John of Capistrano found himself locked in a dungeon, in a cell that was half filled with stagnant water. Alone in the dark, John worried and planned, and realized that he did not know what to do. Perhaps he drifted off to sleep, or perhaps he had a vision, because the next thing he saw was light. The light poured into the dungeon, and John saw a man coming toward him. The man was wearing the habit of the Franciscan order, but he also bore the stigmata, the wounds of Christ in his hands and feet, and John's nimble mind deduced who this visitor must be. This was St. Francis, the founder of the Franciscan order, a saint who had received the stigmata. St. Francis also wore the tonsure, the shaved head that monks wore to show what they were and to humble themselves. John had always been rather proud of his long flowing hair, so perhaps that was why looking at St. Francis's shaved head made him reflexively touch his own, only to discover that his hair was gone. He was tonsured too. And that's when John got it. He realized what he was being called to do. Shortly afterward, the man who had captured John offered him a chance to buy his freedom. John agreed. He didn't really care about spending the money, because when he got home, he set about changing his life. He broke off his engagement. He made sure his mother would be comfortable. Then he gave away his possessions and his wealth. He was troubled by the thought that he still had his status, his dignity, when he thought that he should be humble. When he was much older, John still recalled how he had abandoned this final possession. Then, returning to Perugia, I put a cap on my head with all my sins 
written upon it, and rode backward on an ass so as to overcome this miserable world. As I rode thus through the streets, the children came in crowds and threw mud at me. In this condition of reproach, I went to the friars, that is, the Franciscan Order of Friars Minor, and put on their habit. Blessed be that day. John was now a novice Franciscan. But if you were wondering if his sudden abandonment of everything wasn't a bit out of character, maybe a product of too much time spent in a dark dungeon, maybe something that John would grow out of, well, then now you're thinking like the novice master. The master wanted to be very sure that John had thought this through. He wanted to ensure that John understood that he wasn't going to be a famous and powerful judge anymore. So the novice master was extra rough with John, treating him far more harshly than the other novices. He probably assumed that this would send John scurrying back to his former life. It had the opposite effect, though, and John grew in obedience and humility. He would fondly remember the novice master for the rest of his life. After a year, John became a priest. The next part of his training, the study of theology, was easy, and the other students joked that John seemed to suck up knowledge while he was sleeping. Maybe part of it was that John barely slept, only closing his eyes for two or three hours in a night, reading books when other people were in their beds. And it was in this stage of his training that John demonstrated a real skill at preaching. The Franciscans realized that a talented speaker was just what was needed. Around them, the Middle Ages were coming to an end, and everything seemed to be breaking down. Gunpowder had changed the face of warfare, and now a noble knight could be killed by a shot from a distant cannon. Medieval philosophy had long since passed its peak, and was trapped in hair-splitting distinctions. The medieval economy had made some people very wealthy, and they used that wealth to squeeze the rest. And as for the church, watching two rival popes excommunicate one another had extinguished much of the faith of earlier generations. It was an ugly and cynical time. John of Capistrano would go into it, bringing the word of God. John left on his preaching tour. He was a small, thin man, walking along barefoot. People who met him were struck by his energy and his constant cheerfulness. He healed the sick, and then he would preach to those who cared to listen. He preached orthodox Christianity. He thundered against heretics, rapacious lords, and exploitative merchants. In a time when the church seemed to stand for nothing, John was different. As he passed from town to town in Italy, his following grew. Soon he was drawing crowds so big that the churches couldn't hold them, routinely preaching to ten or twenty thousand in the city squares. When he got to the small town of Brescia, he swamped it, pulling in 126,000 listeners. John's willingness to address corruption and name its source 
was making him enemies as well as friends. He didn't let that stop him. Gradually, as John became more senior and better known, his role came to include inquisitor as well as preacher and healer. Other nations began to take note of what John had done in the Italian lands. By the 1450s, John was in demand. He was invited to preach in the lands of the Holy Roman Empire. By now, one of John's companions was keeping a daily tally of miracles performed. Here's a relatively slow day. 13 May, that is, 1451, at the same place, that is, a Franciscan monastery where John stopped on the way into Germany. Three lame, seven deaf, one dumb and unable to walk without a stick, and one almost blind for twelve years were miraculously cured. Sometimes the stories only caught up with the Franciscans after the fact. As John was passing through Vienna, a woman in a nearby village in modern Austria was mourning the loss of her little girl. Little Catherine had fallen into a well. It had taken the town the whole weekend to figure out where she was, and by the time they did, the child had long ago drowned. The mother had been desperate. She heard that John of Capistrano was passing through Vienna, and some impulse made her wrap her daughter's little body up and walk with it for eight hours to get to the big city. But when she got there, she couldn't even get through the crowds to catch John's eye. So she waited until he gave the crowd a general blessing. Not knowing what to do, she went to a nearby church, laid her sad bundle on the pew, and prayed. Then she noticed that little Catherine was breathing, and when she unwrapped her, the girl was alive. The jubilant mother told the story to anyone who would listen, and by and by it made its way back to the Franciscans. One of John's companions dutifully added it to the record. The next nation to ask for John's attention was Poland. By 1453, he was in Krakow, already being courted by the King of England to visit there. But in 1453, the terrible news that came from the East made John pause. He had been fighting complacency his whole life. Now, he wondered whether that complacency might doom Christendom itself. On May 29th, 1453, the city of Constantinople had fallen to the Ottoman Turks, led by Mehmed II, the conqueror. The city had been the seat of the Roman emperor since Constantine had built it more than a thousand years earlier. For most of that millennium, it had been a Christian bulwark in the east, resisting assault after assault by the forces of Islam. Now, it was gone. The fall of the Eastern Romans meant that the Turks had set their sights on conquering all of Europe. But as John of Capistrano looked around Europe, none of the princes seemed overly concerned. They were fighting each other. The popes tried to sound the alarm, but the credibility of the church was so degraded that few heeded their call for crusade. A few lords sent some troops and supplies to help in the east, but most continued to squabble among themselves. John tried to discern where God wanted him to be. 
and as he prayed, an answer unfolded in his mind. He was headed for Hungary. That was where the fate of Europe would be decided, and John would be in the thick of it. And with the answer came the certainty that this would be his final trip, for part of what awaited John of Capistrano in Hungary was his own death. A package came from the Pope. It contained a Franciscan habit, but it had an additional feature. The red cross of a crusader had been sewn to it. John took the cross and went east. As he moved across Europe, John continued to do what he always did. He preached. He healed the sick. But now his sermons had a new note. He was calling up the people to crusade. Not the Lord's. They were pretty much a lost cause. John was speaking to the ordinary people of Christendom, asking for their help. As the Turkish army closed in on Hungary, the Christian Council of War took place in Buda. There were some lords present, but not enough. The king of Hungary, Ladislaw V, was no fool. He had looked at the army that was coming and borrowed a large sum of money, then gone on a hunting trip to Vienna to be well out of the way when his kingdom ceased to exist. One man who had stayed was the Hungarian lord John Hunyadi. He was a battle-hardened veteran, someone who had been fighting the Turks almost his whole life. He was staying for the Hungarian last stand. Initially, Hunyadi was wary of John of Capistrano. Hunyadi was glad that John was preaching crusade, not that he thought it would make much difference. He thought that John's insistence on combating heresy was counterproductive. But then it was time for action. As the Turks moved in, Hunyadi planned to meet them with everything he had at the fortress city of Belgrade in modern Serbia. The city had high walls and was surrounded on several sides by water. Perhaps it could hold out. Hunyadi only had 10 or 20,000 men in his army, and he divided this tiny force to send 5,000 men ahead to fortify the city. The army of Mehmed II, meanwhile, numbered around a 100,000 men. The sultan, so it was rumored, had looked at the pitiful forces confronting him and had sworn by the prophet Muhammad that he would blow through Belgrade and be sitting down to dinner in captured Buddha in a month's time. But then something strange began to happen. As John of Capistrano walked to Belgrade, the fields began to empty of laborers. No one could find workers. They were taking up the cross. One by one they picked up their tools and came to Belgrade. At first it was just a few men, then a few hundred, then a thousand, then ten, then it was twenty, then thirty thousand. As crusaders flooded into Belgrade, the odds shifted a little. They were still hopelessly outnumbered, but it had been ten to one, and now it was just two to one. John of Capistrano arrived in Belgrade in early July of 1456. 
Hunyadi's soldiers, meanwhile, were in the field, harassing Mehmed's army, and allowing Mehmed to push them toward Belgrade, where they wanted to be anyway. In Belgrade, John of Capistrano thought that perhaps he should bring his men out to meet Hunyadi's, and tried boarding them on boats and sailing them up the Danube. The ships encountered a storm, and the disappointed crusaders had to disembark and walk back. As they later learned, the storm had saved them from blundering into Mehmed's main force, which was waiting just a little further up the river. When the Turks moved in and set up a siege, Hunyadi was cut off from Belgrade. But the wily general understood that the weak part of the Ottoman effort was their fleet. His men worked day and night to convert civilian craft into warships, and attacked on the Danube on July 14th. It was a hard fight, but the Christians on the river were supported by John's crusaders on the banks, and after five hours, the Ottoman fleet was burning, and the Christians controlled the Danube. Hunyadi marched into the city. Thanks to his efforts, the city could be resupplied. And to the old warrior's surprise, part of that resupply consisted of crusaders who just kept coming drawn by John of Capistrano's words. The general realized that this friar might have something to contribute, after all. Now, the question was how long the walls of Belgrade could hold. Mehmed II had brought the technology that allowed him to capture Constantinople. Bombards. These were huge cannons, firing massive boulders. Among the hundreds of bombards, were almost twenty giants, bombards over twenty-five feet long, capable of pounding castle walls and smashing them into rubble. As the days passed, the bombards struck the walls of the city again and again. The walls began to collapse under the assault. Even when they missed, the huge stones flew into the city and caused havoc. One came in the roof of a church, as one of John of Capistrano's companions was saying Mass. John of Capistrano, meanwhile, seemed to be everywhere. Every morning he said Mass, and those who were there left with their hopes renewed. He passed through the city, stopping to speak to soldiers and civilians, and somehow John's total trust in God was contagious. He didn't seem to stop to eat or sleep, People said that if you tried to follow him around, you'd be so exhausted that before long, you'd be the one sitting down and taking a rest. Hunyadi began to worry that John, who was in his seventies, would not be able to hold up, and gave him a horse to help him get around. After a few days on John's schedule, the horse collapsed of exhaustion. John kept going on foot. By the 20th of July, the walls of Belgrade had been reduced to rubble. John Hunyadi surveyed the damage. For years he had beaten the Turks, always one step ahead of them. But here in Belgrade, his luck had run out. He knew that he had no tactical advantage. There was nothing left in his bag of tricks. Hunyadi could see that tomorrow the Turks would begin the final push. The great general felt despair. Over the long night of the 20th, he and John of Capistrano 
prepared their men for the assault that they knew would come. But when Hunyadi spoke privately to John, he found that the Franciscan was still of good cheer. God wasn't going to abandon them, John said. It didn't matter that they were outnumbered. Hunyadi wanted to believe him, but couldn't. He had been doing this for much longer than John of Capistrano, and war had its own rules. The only thing left was to show a brave face to his men, and to die well. On the 21st of July, the Turkish war drums began to sound. There were so many that the Christians could hear them in Belgrade. The drums went on and on as the massive army assembled, finally ready for the assault by the late afternoon. Hunyadi moved men onto boats as rapid response teams, ready to sail along the Danube and jump out where the fighting was thickest. Then the Ottoman charge began. The Turks swept over the ruined walls and pressed into the city. But the defenders rallied and began to push them back. Outside the broken-down city wall, the Turks regrouped for a second push. Again, the Christians pushed them back. The Ottoman commander realized the problem. There were many in the Ottoman army who were forced to be there, and perhaps they weren't fighting hard enough. The next charge would be led by fanatics. And so the next charge was led by the Janissary Corps. They were the elite force of the Ottoman Turks. They were boys, stolen as children from the Sultan's white Christian subjects, forcibly converted to Islam, and trained in war. The result was a corps of slave soldiers who were superbly trained and fanatically loyal. The Janissaries burst through the defenders and into the city, rushing up to the walls of the citadel. Because those walls were inside the city, they hadn't been knocked down by the cannon fire. That was where the last defense of the city would take place. Many of the defenders thought they had no chance and dived out of the back of the citadel into the Danube, swimming for safety. In the citadel, John Hunyadi made his stand. Outside, on the bridge that led to the citadel gates, was John of Capistrano, surrounded by a handful of crusaders. The Janissaries swept in. They were much more talented warriors, but the crusaders were determined. Somehow, in the middle of the fighting, John of Capistrano was untouched. Shouting the crusader battle cry, the holy name of Jesus. And seeing that he still stood, his banner held high, more crusaders found their courage and piled into the fight at the gates. Meanwhile, Janissaries swarmed up the walls of the citadel. On the ramparts, there was fierce fighting. The Turks captured a bit of the wall, and one soldier brought up their crescent moon standard. The disappointment of seeing the enemy standard displayed on the citadel might have been too much for the defender's morale. One of Hunyadi's commanders, Titus Dugovich, realized what he had to do. He ran through the battle, tackling the Muslim standard-bearer and grappling with him. The force of the charge took them both off the wall, Muslim and Christian falling to their deaths below. 
the Crusaders were no match for the Janissaries in skill. But in this desperate battle, determination mattered too. As waves of fresh Crusaders kept arriving, and evening was falling, the Janissaries lost their resolve and retreated to the Ottoman lines. The city was safe for the night. On the morning of July 22nd, the fighting started again. But the Crusaders had gotten a taste of blood, and they wanted more. John had his standard bearer raise the banner, and he began to walk forward toward the Turks. Around him, the Crusaders surged forward. John's amateur fighters pressed toward the Turkish lines, breaking through, running up and capturing the great bombards. Often, that kind of charge would leave an army hopelessly spread out. But Hunyadi understood that he could help. He led his disciplined men behind the enthusiastic crusaders, making sure that they were not cut off, locking down strategic objectives. By the time the Turks tried to counterattack, Hunyadi's men had swiveled the bombards in their direction. Soon, it was only the Janissaries who were still holding their ground, with Mehmed courageously fighting alongside his men. Then, Mehmed II was wounded, shot in the calf with an arrow. The commander of the Janissaries died trying to save his sultan. This time, it was the Muslims who were saved by the coming of the night. Overnight, they buried their dead and retreated. The battle for Belgrade was over. John of Capistrano wrote to the Pope, Rejoice, therefore, in the Lord, Holy Father, and bid men give him praise, glory, and honor, because he alone has wrought great wonders. For neither I, your feeble and useless servant, nor the poor uncouth crusaders, your devoted clients, could have done this by any strength of ours. The Lord God of armies has done it all. To him be glory forever. The defense of Belgrade proved to be John Hunyadi's last battle. As the general was dying, sick and exhausted, he asked to see John of Capistrano. The friar sadly told Hunyadi that it was time to prepare for death. Prepare for death, Hunyadi smiled grimly. He had been fighting the Turks for so long, he had prepared for death long ago. He was only surprised it had taken death so long to find him. The defense of the city had cost John of Capistrano as well. He now needed a crutch to get around. He looked emaciated, and soon the doctors told him that he too had to prepare for death. Around John, junior monks read the daily prayers. But when one monk kept making mistakes, the old inquisitor's eye popped open. John kindly told the monk that he was bequeathing him his breviary. It had all the correct words in it. In his last days, John found his mind turning to the Nunc Dimittis, the words of Simeon, who can now die in peace, having seen the Messiah. Christendom was saved, for now, and slowly, very slowly, 
the nations of Europe were waking up. But for John of Capistrano, the great work was at last complete. <laughs>